You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. We have a slightly different way that we're going to have the sermon today. The thing that will be the same is I'm going to preach a lot. The thing that was going to be a little bit different is I'm not going to read any of the texts for today, and there's quite a few. Here's two things I want you to know. Number one, everything good that we can say will always and forever come through the womb of good conversation, either with the Holy Spirit or with other people because of the Holy Spirit. I will venture to say this, if every good thing you say is never conversed about with other people, it's only told to people, maybe check yourself a little bit. It's good to submit what we think we heard from God to other people, because in the accountability of the house of God, God refines his revelation well. And Jacqueline and I are blessed to have many faithful friends in this church, and we, we feel unbelievably supported. Uh, Grady and Courtney Behrens are two of our very close friends, and we have had tussles in conversation a lot because they are both well-read. They're like the Bereans from Acts, Whereas a pastor, you just want people to be like, wow, that was really good. That's all I'm looking for. Like, I don't even care if you listen to anything I say. I just want compliments. Isn't that sad? That's like, I'm about to show in this, in this message how affirmation is actually really good, so don't get on me about it. We all need it. Yes. What happened was we started a text versation, as my brother Frank likes to say, and in about 8,000 text messages, we were discussing the topic for today, and as Grady was involved in it, but he didn't say anything for 36 hours, Courtney and I were talking, and as the conversation began to unfold, it was my sermon prep for today. And so what I wanted to do was I wanted to have Courtney all throughout the sermon read the verses because these verses came from that conversation, but I also want us to know this. The Bible, every sermon needs the Bible to be a good sermon, but the Bible does not need a sermon to be a good book. Any pastor who tries to preach without the Bible is kidding themselves. Don't trust them. It's clever these days to get up and never crack open your Bible and never have Scripture read. You want every word that comes from your pastor's mouth to be rooted in Scripture. Everything. Directly related to Scripture. Not some verse and then nothing about that verse is said later just because we checked off the box that we read. Everything we say has to be anchored by scripture. And what I want to make sure happens today is sometimes the way that we preach here, it's different in other churches, but the way that we preach here, when I'm preaching and reading at the same time, sometimes the reading of the scripture can sound like the sermon. And I want to make sure that we hear the text juxtaposed to the sermon. I want to make sure that the sound of the text being read is different than the sound of the message being preached. Because I want us to see that this is what the Spirit is saying through Jesus encounters us through ink on a page with this particular book. And it's important that we hear the clear enunciation of the gospel in all parts of Scripture so that the sermon even has a chance of making it. But how many people here have ever wrestled with or messed with or tried to do the Book of Common Prayer? When you, that's actually. Amazing. When you get to the part where the scripture is read, it's called the, well, somebody shout it out. What's the part of the book? What's the part of the daily office where the scripture shows up? It's called the, the lessons. 
Thank you, Jacqueline. That was sexy. <laughs> I love when you know stuff about that. It's amazing. Everybody leave. No, I'm just kidding. It's called the lessons, but there's no sermon. The reading of the Bible is a lesson. It doesn't need a sermon. The sermon needs the Bible. And so don't think I'm not preaching. I'm going to preach. But we need the Bible. My lectionary reader is actually laughing at me right now. We need the Bible to anchor the message. So I'm not going to ask you all to stand. I'm going to awkwardly and and embarrass her. I'm going to ask Courtney to stand. And we put a microphone there so she doesn't have to keep running up here because she's going to be reading a lot. But let's listen to our opening text for the day. A reading from Proverbs 8. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth, before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there, when he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. That was the word of the Lord. What we hear is wisdom talking. Wisdom is talking. If you like to take notes, don't today. Let's We have to go on this journey together. I don't want anybody to miss anything. Listen to the podcast. Ian will edit it, and anything dumb that I say will be edited out, and it will be better to take notes then because all the terrible stuff will be edited out. Wisdom is speaking to us, and here's what I want to say first. We are entering a season of rest in this church where God has told us to not do a midweek Bible study starting in July, but to get together with each other in unofficial ways. And for the next two weeks, next week and the week after, we're going to explain exactly what that's going to look like. But we have to understand that I believe with all of my heart that the season we're entering into is a season that is going to shift and change the landscape of how we interact with Jesus as a church. Rest is not a circumstance we encounter. It's a state of being we need to prepare for. Rest is not a circumstance we encounter. It's a state of being we need to prepare for. If rest is, an, is a circumstance, then all we're ever going to be doing is waiting for our schedules to get lighter to then say we're resting. Rest is not a circumstance we encounter. It is a state of being that we prepare for. If I'm restful, because here's the reality. How many people in the room can honestly say, that you have had days off where you actually had nothing to do, and after about two hours of doing nothing, you start to get real crabby, real nasty, and all of a sudden, Anthony's one. I see that hand. You can put it down. Elder Bill hand. You can put it down. We got some hands in the back being honest. All of a sudden, the people around you hate the fact that you were off that day. 
there's something about not being a restful person that makes rest decay itself. Not doing does not equal resting. There are people who are very busy and are at total rest. And there are people who don't have much to do, and they're, they're like the ocean, back and forth all the time. There's, there's no settledness in there. We need to let the Holy Spirit teach us how to rest this summer. And like we said two, three weeks ago when I spoke, rest happens two ways. It's time alone with God doing nothing, and it's time with each other doing something. Rest is never just alone. Rest is about doing things with the people of God because God is a trinity who does stuff with himself. That's what we hear. Wisdom is speaking and wisdom is saying, I was there before anyone was created, before the world was created, I was there. And what was wisdom doing? Wisdom was calling out in four locations. Wisdom is crying out to us in four locations. The first location is it says wisdom cries out on the heights. What does this mean? Wisdom cries out on the heights. This means that wisdom is needed in seasons where life is going really well. The minute we think we don't need wisdom when seasons of fruitful blessing show up, we will ruin the seasons of fruitful blessing. How many know children are a blessing from the Lord? How many know you need wisdom the split second that child shows up into your life? I said to Sophia this morning, I said, Sophia, today's Father's Day. She said, happy Father's Day, Dad. And I said, and we always have this saying, I say, you make me, and she says, happy. That's the thing we say back and forth. It's a little mantra. I say, you make me, and she says, happy. And today, no lie, I said, Sophia, you make Daddy, and she goes, crazy? (laughs) And I said, absolutely, boom, perfect. She's got it. She's getting it. I've talked to a lot of people who are having wonderful things happen in their life, but then when there's no anchoring and rest, we slowly start to see the blessings of God take us away from the people of God. We start to see the blessings of God take us away from the peace of God. We start to see the blessings of God, lawns to mow, houses to clean, people to hang out with, jobs to go to, cars to drive around that eventually need maintenance. We start to see all of these things that are really blessings start to make us grumpy curmudgeons. Children are a blessing from the Lord, and the blessing from the Lord said to me today, I make you crazy, don't I? She said, Dad, you don't rest all the time because of me. She preached the message to me, and she's 100% right, because when there's not a spirit of rest, even our blessings can drive us crazy. So we need wisdom to call out when we're on the heights. We need wisdom to call out when things are going well. Wisdom calls out on the heights, and then wisdom calls out, by the way, we all know this one, when you're cast to the wayside, when you're no longer on the path, when you're, when you're in the rough, if you're like I always am when we're playing golf, if you're in the rough, if you're where you can't see much, we need wisdom there too, because we have to get back to the path. I love this. Wisdom calls out at the crossroads. How many people have ever been in the valley of decision in your life? What do we do next? Now that this trial has shown up, what do we do? Now that blessing has shown up, what do we do? You ever notice, um, I I love watching political dramas. Um, One of my favorites is The West Wing. I'm just burying my soul to you. Like, I just, I love love drama and politics are intriguing and also dramatic, so when you put them together, 
It's just like escape from reality. And in the West Wing, they always say when the president gets into a car and is going from one place to another, that's when security is at its weakest. In transition, at crossroads, at intersections, it's at its weakest. Whenever you're in a season in your life where you're deciding A or B, this or that, up or down, left or right, that is when your soul is the most thin. You're most susceptible to temptation and annoyance and, and little foxes that ruin the whole vineyard. Wisdom calls out on the heights. Wisdom calls out by the wayside. Wisdom calls out to us at the crossroads. And then wisdom calls out to us at the gates. How many have ever been part of any kind of confrontation in your life? Everyone should raise your hand. I'm confronting you right now. Wisdom, you need wisdom to show up immediately when you're confronting somebody. Because otherwise, being right will trump being hospitable. Otherwise, correct behavior will be more important to us than a changed heart. Emoji face like this. You know that one? I always use that one. It's like in my top 10. By the way, if you want to see how you're doing spiritually, look at your top 10 most used emojis. It's frightening. Imagine the Holy Spirit was talking to them. I have a lightning bolt and pizza in mine. Wisdom says, I'm calling out at the heights. I'm calling out by the way. I'm calling out at the crossroads. I'm calling out at the gates. And then wisdom is delighting in God, delighting in creation, and delighting in man. So we have to understand something. Today is Trinity Sunday. Today's the day where we celebrate the mystery of all mysteries, the Trinity. Uh, the, the color for this is gold, and that's why the cross is gold today. And we celebrate this mystery that God is the only being that can delight in himself and not have it be an egocentric reality. Because when God delights in himself, because he's three in one, his delight is a giving and a receiving at the same time. So I'm going to ask Courtney to read Genesis one twenty six. Part A. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Do you see this? God says to himself, let us make man in our image. And wisdom in the previous text was saying, before anything was ever created, I was there delighting in God and he was delighting in me. And then wisdom says, before anything was ever created, I was rejoicing in all of God's creation. Do you see that or hear that? What we're hearing is that God's delight in himself, the mutual delight between the Father and the Son, and the way that they can delight in each other through the Spirit that delights in both of them, this unity or this community of delight is so strong and so powerful that the number one phrase that speaks to delight is, let us make man in our image. The creation of the world is the product of God's delight in himself and us before we were ever created. We're heading toward a vital point where affirmation, we need to receive it from God and we need to give it to each other. Because the way that God delights is by creating. So what do we know about wisdom? Wisdom is the spirit of celebration. 
we have all heard wisdom taught like Solomon. You know, the story, saw the baby in half and we'll know who the real mother is. That story. And we say, wow, that's a, that's a story of tremendous wisdom. And, and we, we read the Proverbs and we read all of these wonderful attributes of decision-making and insight that we call wisdom. But here's what I want you to know. Before wisdom is ever wise choices, before wisdom is ever clever decision-making, wisdom is the spirit of delight. I delighted in God, and he delighted in me, and we delighted in creation and in humanity. When you pray for wisdom, what you're praying for is the ability to not be high maintenance. Have you ever met somebody who was high maintenance before? (laughs) Never. It's because you're high maintenance. High-maintenance people are people that are very difficult to please because they're people... Oh, boy. (laughs) High-maintenance people are people who have gotten grown numb to the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. Wow, I heard a name just called out just now. (laughs) I missed preaching for two weeks so bad. You have no idea how much I love you guys so dearly. Get out of my way, pulpit. I love you guys so much. Punk. Wisdom is simple delight. Let me tell you something. Most issues in this room, most relational issues, marital issues, mental health issues, most of them start. I am not giving a be-all, end-all. I'm saying the starting place of healing is the ability to become delightful, to slow down Stop assessing, stop wanting, stop craving for two seconds and delight in what you actually can see with your eyes right now, wherever you are, 24-7, whatever you can see. Here's the reality. You will never be in a place. Like I said when, when we were talking, the poorest of the poor can still see the sky. You don't need any money to see the sun go down or come up. If you can see a blade of grass you can slow down and say, Lord, that is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And that is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is the spirit of celebration. And here's how we can prove it to you. Courtney's going to read a very famous text from James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Hold on for one second. James just said something annoying. He said, when you fall into trials of various kinds, count it all joy. And the word in the Greek for count is the word that would be used for a judge passing a sentence. Like, in other words, he's saying, when you fall into trials of various kinds, demand that joy shows up. That's annoying because we can't always do that. So the question I would want to raise to James is, how do I count it all joy? And the next verse. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Do you see that? How do I count it all joy? Ask for wisdom. Why? Because before wisdom is good decision-making or wise choices, it's the spirit of celebration. Wisdom is what we all need to not be boring. 
when somebody is fun-spirited, everyone around them is always more healthy. So much of our emotional train wreckism comes from losing our ability to have fun, from losing our ability to be easily delighted. We are high maintenance. We are all political drama. We're all the West Wing. We are all Charlie Sheen. We're all in trouble. <laughs> We're always trying to get reelected all the time. Oh my goodness gracious. If we were really honest with ourselves, we're campaigning all the time. Because we can never just enjoy the moment and say, they like me now, but I need to know they'll like me tomorrow. So the now isn't good enough. I'm going to be campaigning for tomorrow. Come on. It's never enough now. Oh, we have money today, but I've been down this road before. I know we're not going to have money again. So I can't enjoy today because tomorrow's not good. Oh, we finally got to go away. We have one night in a really nice place, but I wish it was two. We had a really good day with the kids, but I know they're going to be brats again tomorrow because it's Monday. We, I think this is why God puts Sunday before Monday because we're all saying today was a great day, but I got to wake up tomorrow. Because we're high maintenance, we don't know how to pause and just enjoy. And James is saying, when you fall into various trials, you need joy. Joy is the thing that can punch suffering in its face. But how do I get joy? You need to ask for wisdom. Because wisdom, the person, well, you're saying, they're saying, well, I thought wisdom was making wise choices. Here's where they connect. The person who's joyful is the person whose mind will be clear enough to think. How many times have we made a bad decision and say, it's because i got a lot going on up here. I just have so much going on right now. Give me a break. I just irreparably damaged your self-esteem, but I have a lot going on. What's going on? Work. Like, it feels like a lot to us, but when you actually say it to somebody, you start making things up that aren't going on because when you started saying it, it doesn't sound like it's all that bad. What do you have going on? Work. You know, my, you know, and then, you know, i got to wake up in the morning, so I have that going on, and... And then traffic, we have nothing. But it just gets so locked in. And I know some of you really do have a lot going on. And here's what I know. Two years of pastoring this wonderful congregation, here's what I know. Most of you who have a lot going on are the most joyful people in the room. And the ones that I know are blessed out of your socks are the most cynical people here. Because we forget that wisdom first calls out on the heights. We forget that we need wisdom when things are going well. We know we need it when things are going bad. That's why most of us do better when things are going bad. And then when they get good again, we start doing terrible and they get bad again. And then we find Jesus again. Or I'm just making this up. I don't know. It's possible. Simple delight is the ease of personality. Your personality should be easy. Jesus is the only one who can say, I have a lot going on. And he had an easy personality. It's easy to be, the only way it was hard to be in Jesus' presence is if you were all about yourself. Because Jesus was so other-centered, people who are self-centered hate him because he's unbelievably convicting. So now, we will read... This is, I'm, I'm laughing, Jacqueline, because I love you so much first. These are our wedding verses that we had, and they're about suffering, but I love you <laughs> so much. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. And E, just leave that last verse up there. Um, I need to say something. If you're going to go here, here's something I want to say about suffering. This is what I believe about suffering. God does not allow suffering to happen for a purpose. God allows purpose to happen in suffering. And there's a difference between the two. Suffering is not a tool God uses to get better things to happen because that would be awful. Suffering is not a tool God uses. Suffering is a location where God happens. And so when we enter suffering, we enter a place where God has gone before us and he's happening there. So when we enter suffering, where suffering is meant to decay, but we experience a God who's happening in the suffering, then suffering begins to actually produce in us the end of suffering. Is that simple enough? When we say, you know, God allowed that to happen so something better can happen. I just, I feel like language is so important. I just want to change it. God does not allow suffering to happen for a reason. God allows reason to happen in suffering. God doesn't take suffering out and smack you with it. God enters it with you. And not only does he transform you in it, but he transforms it. The suffering changes. Watch this. Here's what suffering should produce. I'm going to go to the chart, and then I want to go back to Romans 5, 5e. Here's what suffering should produce. Suffering should produce fatigue. How many know suffering makes you tired? Yes? I love this. Suffering produces impulsivity. How many people here can admit that when everybody knows you're suffering, sometimes you use it as leverage to do things you wouldn't normally do because everybody knows you're going through a lot? Bunch of liars in the room. Thank you. See those hands? You can put them down. Just let's look at diet. You've been having a bad week, so you justify eating 75 pizzas. <laughs> Language gets a little, little off color. You, you know, listen, what I want to be saying isn't as bad as what I just said, so Charles, give me a break. We get very impulsive when we're suffering because suffering actually gives us a license to do things we wouldn't normally do. So it produces fatigue, it produces impulsivity, and it produces despair. (laughs) But watch this. When God pours his love into our hearts, into our suffering little hearts, suffering produces the opposite of those things. When love is poured into suffering, it doesn't produce fatigue, it produces endurance. It doesn't produce impulsivity, it produces character. And it doesn't produce despair, it produces hope. Because when Jesus is poured into suffering, this is why James can say, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. James is saying the same thing Paul is saying, because Jesus was poured into suffering, and all of a sudden suffering started to change. Jesus turned a tomb into a birth canal. Those are two very opposite realities. And Jesus went into the worst suffering had to offer and turned the tomb into a birthing place, into a place where life comes from. 
our mission isn't just to get out of suffering. Our mission is to get into it and punch it in its face with the love of God. That's what our mission is. One of the reasons why we're the most medicated nation on planet Earth is because we spend all of our time wanting to avoid suffering, and when it inevitably happens, we're not, we don't have the bandwidth for it. We don't have the Wi-Fi bandwidth to handle two tablets on at the same time. It slows down when too many things are going on. The love of God is poured into that. Go back to Romans 5.5. 5. Look at the Trinity found in this verse. The love of God that's the Father, is poured into our hearts through the, there's the Spirit, but where's Jesus in this verse? Watch this. The love of God is poured. That's Jesus. Jesus is the emptying of God's self into our life. Jesus is when God poured himself fully out into our lives, and Jesus goes right to the bottom, right to the place of suffering, and he starts all of his work there. He doesn't use suffering and then put it back in a toolbox, because if he did it that way, suffering would always be suffering. A hammer is always going to be a hammer, but Jesus entered suffering, and he's transforming it from the inside out. That's why the Bible talks about streams in the desert, not pulling people out of the desert, but streams in the desert. The desert transforms when the love of God is poured out. God's delight in himself immediately unleashes a pouring out of love. We should be the kind of people who are so filled with wisdom, being the spirit of celebration, that we take such delight. And listen to me, I'm going to say this. We take delight in each other and we delight in ourselves. We delight in ourselves in a way that produces giving not consuming resources to prop myself up, but understanding that I get to believe what God says about me. There's a lot of people in this room right now, you have stopped thinking that you're valuable. You've stopped thinking that you have something good in you. You've stopped thinking that there is something priceless in you that Jesus died for. It can easily go astray when we think everything around me is meant to yield to my pricelessness. But when we start to believe the spirit of delight that is in us, crying out, Abba, Father. Notice, wisdom calls out. God pours. Real celebration is something that is given. You ever seen them YouTube videos of people who are watching their favorite team play, and there's like a buzzer shot or something, and the dad goes absolutely berserk in the house and like starts jumping on people and going absolutely crazy? It's been me before that one time the Giants were good. When David Tyree caught that ball on his head, I almost decapitated my then-girlfriend. <laughs> Very exciting. Why do we jump towards somebody when we celebrate? Because celebration innately is Trinitarian. When we really are celebratory, when we really have joy, we will run out and find someone to be joyful with. If all we do is pursue happiness, we can do that by ourselves. But the pursuit of joy, I need you as much as I need God and everything else. Because when joy hits my life, I need someone to hug. I need someone to jump around with. I need John and Stephanie to get up here and start singing so I could jump up and down like the whitest person in the room, don't care, because that's how I express myself. <laughs> by the way, speaking of celebrations, John and Steph, everybody, got married. 
Can I have a personal moment with them real fast? John and Steph, you just got married and showed up late to church. Don't, you have no lines in this one, John. Just don't say anything. Just, just laugh. We need someone to celebrate with. <laughs> mm. Awkward, but funny. What does this look like actually played out? And we'll close here. We're going to close for like 15 minutes, but we'll start the closing. Like when the pilot's like, we're going to begin our descent, and that means your flight is still eight hours more. We'll begin our descent right now. What does this look like in actual human interaction? I'm going to have Courtney read Mark chapter 1, verse 11. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And then read Mark 9, 7, please. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Thank you. All right, fathers, here we go. Here's my Father's Day tie-in. Here's a moment where everything I just talked about actually happens in the life of somebody. A father. Jesus gets baptized, and a voice comes from heaven. Listen to this very carefully. A voice comes out of heaven and says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And what was descending on Jesus as the Father was saying that? The Holy Spirit. So into the Holy Spirit, the voice of God leaves heaven and goes through the Holy Spirit into the Son's life, and he says to Jesus, before Jesus had ever healed a blind eye or raised somebody from the dead, before Jesus had ever accomplished anything, the Father speaks through the Holy Spirit to the Son and says, you are my beloved Son, and I am already pleased with you, which means that God's being pleased with us has nothing to do with performance, but the very fact that he sees himself in us because he created us. But notice the second time God says this, he says, this is my beloved son. The first time he says it, he says, you are my beloved son. The second time he says it, he says, this is my beloved son. Why the difference? Because, and dads, I'm gonna talk to you specifically here, this is important, but then it goes for all of us too. The first time the father affirms the son, he says you. Why? Because he's speaking to the son loud enough for other people to hear. So he affirms his son personally, but says it loud enough for us to hear to the point where it gets recorded in scripture. But the second time he affirms Jesus, he says, this is my beloved son. Why? Because the second time he's talking to Peter, James, and John. So watch this. The first time God affirms the Son, he affirms Jesus to Jesus loud enough for others to hear. But the second time he affirms the Son, he affirms the Son to others loud enough for Jesus to hear. How you affirm your children in private will affect them publicly, and how you affirm them publicly will affect them privately. You will always perpetuate what you affirm. And you will always be affirming something. 
if you lose all of your energy out on your children when they're being bad, they will learn that the best way to get your attention, same thing with a spouse, same thing with friends, same thing with your boss. If all your boss ever hears is critique, then they're always going to be critical worthy. We have to find the affirmable Christ in every single person we encounter in our life and in every scenario that happens in our lives. Somewhere in every person you will ever meet is the image of God and is worthy for us. So much of our relational effort is going to be sifting through all of the things that we could critique to find the affirmable thing. The best relationships are the ones where each party in the relationship is good at sifting. Listen, next month we're married nine years. That is a miracle better than Jesus walking on water. The way that we can still be happy is because we're slowly learning to sift through the stuff that wouldn't make us happy, to find the affirmable Jesus in this union. You hear this, John, and stuff? It's all good right now. But John's going to leave his socks out one day, and it's going to start to go downhill from there. (laughs) But before we will ever have the ability to find the affirmable Christ in another person, we need to be affirmed by God. Watch this. Jesus was affirmed, which means the desire to be affirmed is Christ-like. Don't ever let anyone tell you you idolize affirmation because Jesus needed to be affirmed. We've said it before and it bears repeating. God two times says to his son, you are my beloved. And two times, chapters later, Jesus hears the devil say, if you're the son of God. The father was answering a question Jesus hadn't been asked yet, and he was preparing his child to receive a question from the demonic and know the answer before the question was ever even raised. Son, you're coming out of this water. You're going into the world. Know this. The world is going to ask you one question and one question only, and it's still asking you the same thing. If you are a child of God, the answer is yes, you are, so you don't need to do anything that comes after that. The more I feel like I need to prove my Christianity, the more I'm devaluing it. My Christianity is what it is because God says it is. And that's the only reason. Two kinds of affirmation. The first one is pre-performance affirmation. You are my beloved son, and I'm pleased with you. But this is the one I think a lot of people in this room right now need to hear. The second affirmation is this. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The first affirmation was, son, you're valuable to me before you ever do anything, good or bad. The second one was in the, in the hearing distance of the son, the father leans to other people and says, he's got something in him. Listen to him. And I feel like some people in this room need to hear this. God is looking at you. And with you in one hand, he will say to somebody else, 
Listen to her. She's got something to say. Listen to him. He's got something to say. You might think there's no good in you for people to listen to. You may think your value is gone. But the word of God over you right now is not to you, but it's to somebody next to you saying, listen to her. She's got something to say. Every one of you is valuable and worthy and has something to say. If you know Jesus at all, you have something to say. Your mistakes can pile up as high as the horse's bridle. The stones of your temple can be thrown down one upon another. It can all be burnt to the ground, and I will still stand here and say, if you know Jesus, you have something to say. Don't ever let yourself or the world around you tell you that you don't have something to say. You do. Why? Because you were his beloved before you did anything good or bad. You will still be his beloved after you do good things, and you will still be his beloved after you do horrible things. How do I know that? Wisdom. Wisdom is not clever answers. Wisdom is the part of me that can celebrate the God that I serve. So, as I've often said before, I, I am loving more and more our dance team because I believe that dance reveals the Trinity to us. Don't, we're about to have a nice, safe landing here. We're now, we're now so low that you're wondering, oh my God, did he miss the runway this time? No, he didn't. He's about to come down nicely. When the dance team dances, they're showing us what's always going on in the Trinity. And many of us in the middle of a work day on a Wednesday, when our own personal life is pressing on us and our work life is pressing on us and even the personal lives of other people begin pressing on us, we need to close our eyes and realize that God is dancing with us. But watch this. I close with this, with the dance team in the room already. Many of you may be sitting here right now saying, who can roll away the stone? Courtney, I'm going to ask you to read that very last text. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. They were saying on their way there, who can roll away this stone from us? And some of you right now may be saying, I'm so broken, I'm so disillusioned, I'm in such despair with myself. Who can, Pastor, I hear what you're saying, but who can roll away this stone? And here's the reality. It was rolled away when they got there, which makes me ask the question, when was it rolled away? Here's when it was rolled away. When they were celebrating Sabbath, the stone was rolled away. By the time they got there after resting, the stone was already gone, which means it was rolled away while they rested. So here's what I want to say to you in closing. God is still rolling stones, but here's the reality. He will only roll away the stones when we stop trying to roll it away ourselves because God will do God will do in your rest what your overwork can never accomplish. 
I'm going to say that again. God can do in your rest what your overwork can never accomplish. You can't think up enough good things about yourself to roll that stone away. Let him talk to you. He'll roll away the stone. That's why this summer we're going to rest. We're going to take it easy. We're going to learn to delight in the wisdom of God. We're going to learn to have the spirit of celebration. And while we rest and while we choose to not overwork physically, emotionally, or spiritually, he's still going to roll away stones. If you believe that, let me hear you put your hands together. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.